Hey friends, I appreciate you tuning in to the Deal Farm Podcast. On this episode, Kevin and I discuss the it factor, that intangible characteristic that enables some people to achieve tremendous success in business and how knowing and identifying what this is can propel just about anyone to new heights. We also chat with our good friends, Colin and Christina Beck about their business and what it was like winning Flipping Showdown on HGTV. Hope you enjoy. Well, good morning. How are you doing today? I couldn't be better. Having an amazing you, morning. You couldn't be better? Like you, nothing would make Not it better than right now. even possible, except for the rain. It's a little bit rainy outside. Other than that, couldn't be better. Kind of nasty outside. You know what? Well, you know what's missing from my life right now? What's I that? realized today I was, th- I was thinking about it, live music. You know, since the whole COVID thing, I have not gone out and seen live music like in a few years. And it was wow. like, man, I haven't been to a concert in forever. I miss that. I really miss that. You know, we've got a concert uh, lined up in Athens in a, in about a month. I'm taking uh, the kiddos to go see Ben Rector, which I'm pretty nice. excited about. Yeah. Few places better to see live music than Athens, Georgia. That'll be so fun. And it's their first legitimate concert too. And so they're, and it's actually, I should just, it's our oldest. It's not the youngest. And she's yeah. ecstatic about it. And I don't blame her. You, I mean, first Are you taking a group of girls with you then? A bunch of, bunch of teenage girls? Uh, not a bunch. Uh, a couple girls, a couple boys. We, we yeah. typically, she's very good about mixed groups at, at, the, at 15. So keeping it healthy. Well, you know what? I find uh, that when you have a mixed group like that among teenagers, they behave much better. Like True. there's, there's a, you know, a little bit of, I got, you know, I can't get, get too crazy in front of the girls or in front of the guys. So actually behave a little better. Yeah. Not quite as much squealing and giggling and yeah. Yeah. How fun is that though? You get to go to a concert and take your daughter. Is that, this is her first con- live concert? Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah for the most con. part. Yeah. It will be her, like her first legit concert. It's her first legit concert. I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, and now, and she's all about music, you know, in, in those teenage years, some kids are just man their whole identity is wrapped up in their playlist that's her right now she just loves yep. music i mean 24 I, I seven all right first concert first big concert that you can remember going to oh man you remember first big concert maybe tom petty in high school yeah i mean in terms of like big like it was a big outdoor venue oh, yeah. i think it was at lakewood and uh that might the first one i can remember i'm sure i was other ones in high school but that's the first like legit big one i remember going to how about that's you? a pretty good one yeah. uh first one uh was probably rem high school uh nice well i don't know which one was for i went to rem and pylon opened and it was down in columbus so it was a long drive to see him in concert it was either that or u2 i saw u2 in 1987 down at the omni downtown so one of those i can't but i can't remember which one was first but it was a high school you know in high that's school that's awesome man to see you too great but they were both amazing concerts right so good yeah i'm actually reading that bono book right now all right yeah it's a his memoir it's actually really good he's such a interesting he's maybe one of the interest most interesting people on the planet he's such an interesting guy he's so really i got into you too i don't know why we're talking about this but i really got into you too when i was uh early teenager like i remember when we still lived in california being uh what was i 13 or 14 waiting until midnight uh for the unforgettable fire that album to come out and, and going with some friends who could drive because i couldn't drive at the time and buying it uh, at 12.01 when they were, you know, buying the cassette tape when they first released it. And wow. I was part of the, do you know that I was in their, their fan club? This was back before they got like really popular. I got stuff in the mail from Ireland and 
I do kind of because you had poster. I remember your room was littered with U2 posters. I mean, so that yeah. doesn't surprise. And you had all the, yeah, the, the newest tapes. And that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, I was like in the fan club back in the early 80s before they got like really, really big. Uh, yeah, so I don't, and I don't, you know, I do know why, because there were some really cool kids that were older that were into U2. And so it's like, well, I'm going to be in U2 as well, yeah. right? Yeah, so, you, were the, you were in the cutting edge of uh, music back in the 80s. That's pretty awesome. You ever seen, have you ever seen U2 in concert? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen him. Uh, same thing. It was a... Uh, it was at the Dome back in the day. Yeah. About 10, 15 years ago, I saw him at the Georgia Dome. Yeah. They put on a great concert. I've seen them a few times. You know, actually, speaking of recent concerts, you know, the best concert I've been to in the last couple of years, well, of course, because of COVID, I haven't been to that many, was Coldplay in the fall. Yeah. Coldplay yeah. live at the... They're doing those Mercedes like uh, light up. Uh, they're doing the light up wristbands or something like that, aren't it was they? Insane. Yeah. The entire stadium brilliant. was lit up like in sync. I mean, I don't, even, I don't even know how they do that, but it was unbelievable. How do we, how do we get so beer up so off course into concerts? Isn't this supposed hey, to be so kind of a business today? podcast? I, got I think it's supposed to be a business podcast. I don't, what it do you is, got today, man? What do you want? I mean, obviously concerts are fun to talk to. What else do you want to talk about? Yeah. So my thought was, you know, have you ever been around someone that just seemed to have Jedi mind powers that, you know, whether it was in sales or in business, they just knew how to control the, the conversation, the flow, the decision-making you know, there's, there's something I've just, you've been around people that just, they, they seem to have, maybe you haven't because you're that person, right? But they seem to have like Jedi mind powers to control the influence of their environment. And, and I guess what I want to talk about today is what is that? Like, what is it that sets a person apart to be just like uber successful, whether it's at home in relationships or, or in business? And what is it that it factor that sets them apart? The it factor. Yeah, it carries over from personal life into business. They probably progress up the corporate ladder. They end up in positions of leadership. They become CEOs or business owners. Yeah, what is that it factor? You know, it's, it's uh, so, and that's what I, I wanted to talk about today because what uh, researchers, what they found is that people with average IQs, it's not IQ, right? People with mm -hmm. just average IQs outperform people with the highest IQs by 70%, that 70% of the time, a person with an average IQ will completely outperform someone with the absolute highest IQ. And as researchers started looking at this, this is, you know, a few decades ago, they started researching this. That was what they were trying to figure out. It's like, why? Why is it? It's not IQ. It's not your intelligence. And what they found is that it's, it's really your emotional quotient. It's your emotional intelligence is really what sets a person apart. And that emotional intelligence, EQ, is probably the best predictor for success, whether as an entrepreneur or a business person in relationships. That that really is that it factor that sets people apart. That's it. And what's interesting is, you know, people in the business place do lots of personality testing and whatnot, but this isn't a typical conversation of what's your emotional intelligence. It's, you know, are you type A, you type B? What are you on the disc profile? What are you on the Winslow? All these different types of tests. But how does do those personality tests relate to EQ or are they That's totally a great separate? Question. They're totally separate because you can have people that have, you know, a, a wide array of personality types. You know, that's how they, uh, a person typically interacts with themselves and with others where emotional quotient is completely separate. I mean, so you can have someone with real high emotional intelligence who uh, lands, you know, in various spots uh, on the spectrum. You know, the interesting thing about emotion, and really when we talk about, you know, uh, emotional intelligence, we're talking about emotion. And emotion is one of those things where 
uh, if you look at the literature and the research, everyone knows what an emotion is, but nobody can seem to define it accurately. Like there's no standard definition of what an emotion is. Uh, it's it's a slippery thing. It's like we all experience emotions, but what is like what is it that you're really getting at? And researchers have never been been able to establish a genuine definition for that for what those are. Really, it's weird. And the other thing is, you know, we all assume that we have the same emotions. You know, it's it, it, you can think of it almost like um, colors. You know, that we all can see. You know, unless you're colorblind. Right. We all, we all see the same colors. You and I can look at red. We both identify red. We can look at yellow, identify yellow, unless you're colorblind. Then you're kind of restricted in one way or another. And uh, what's interesting is that there are a small percentage of women actually can see more colors than everyone else, that there's a, a, a genetic a change that a small percentage of women can see more colors than, than everybody else, which is kind of interesting. So you would think maybe the same thing with emotions, right? We all experience the same emotions, but it's not true that the, the degree to which we experience emotions is different from person to person and person uh, that we don't experience all the same emotions that it has to do with our emotional development. And so some people, who have a, a, a greater emotional development can very easily identify the difference between happy, joy, giddy, contentedness. You know, they can they can distinguish mm -hmm. between those. And another person just has happy and sad. Like they got, you know, <laughs> they got two speeds. I'm either happy or I'm sad. And somebody who has yeah, maybe a, a little more emotional development can say, you know, th there's a greater degree of variability that feeling anxious is different than feeling nervous, is different than feeling embarrassed, is different than feeling ashamed, is different than, you know, and those are sort of all in the same family. And so we all, each of us experience a, a different, the, the range of emotions, the spectrum of emotions really differs from person to person. And that leads to a person's ability uh, to have that Jedi mind power, that it factor, right? To, to navigate the room, to have emotional quotient. So how, um, how does identifying your emotion, because that's probably the first ingredient to emotional intelligence is just understanding your own emotions. But then how does that in turn help you maybe regulate other people's emotions? And yeah. that's really where that Jedi mind power comes from, right? Is regulating the room more than anything. Yeah, great, great question. So as, as we think about emotional intelligence, you know, what we maybe more generally call relational skills, there's four competencies and it, it starts with self-awareness. And that's the, the degree to which do I understand what I'm feeling or experiencing right now? And it's funny because we all, we all think that we're very self-aware, that if you ask a room of 100 people, 95 will say, yes, no, I'm a, I'm a very self-aware person. But if you actually test it, research finds really only is about 15% of people actually have really solid self-awareness, that we are not necessarily self-aware beings. But that's the first thing, that in order to regulate emotion, you need to label it. You need to be able to identify it. And that requires uh, what's called mindfulness, which is um, <laughs> researchers call metacognition. That's thinking about my thinking. That's sort of setting yourself aside and saying, how am I feeling right now? What am I thinking? Why am I thinking the way that I'm thinking? And that's the ability to, to pause and think about yourself and say, am I feeling angry right now? Or am I embarrassed? Or maybe I'm not really feeling embarrassed. Maybe I'm really ashamed because of something that's going on. Or am I happy? Or is this really joy? And the the greater degree to which you can label the emotion or the feeling that you've got, the, 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 the closer you can get to accuracy of what that is, that's directly related. Well, how well are you going to be able to then regulate that emotion? So the first is self-awareness. Do I really know what I'm feeling? And then second, can I manage 
what I'm feeling right now. And once you can label it, then man, you're in a much better spot to regulate that. And so that's really looking at the self. If you can do that well, you're in a much better spot to navigate the room, navigate challenges, situations, and, and then other people as well. So another question, this is super interesting. Is this something that people develop or is it something that comes naturally to most people? How does, what's the, the distinction between that? Yeah, great question. Again, it's something that's very developmental. Uh, and, and so naturally in our, in our environments we're we're experiencing emotions from birth moving forward. And we've got caregivers who are, are trying to keep us. I've got a baby at home right now. I'm trying to keep the baby from crying, understanding, are you crying? Cause you have a dirty diaper or you're hungry. And so we're naturally in these environments where we're developing our emotions and then being taught, Hey, you know, you, you need to be quiet. You don't need to cry right now. So we're being taught to regulate our emotions. But as a parent, one of the best things you can do, regardless of how old your kid is, is ask your kids to label their emotions, right? Because it is developmental. So when your kid is upset, hey, why are you upset? What is it that you're feeling right now? And work, you know, getting a child who is, who's experiencing a lot of emotion to, to label it and help them get as accurate as possible to label it. And this is something you can do throughout your life. You know, I'm in my 50s now. And it's something I still try to practice of what is it that I'm feeling right now? Just doing a pause. And if I can accurately label it, and then that puts me in a better spot, but it is very developmental and you're not stuck. It's never just in concrete. It's like, oh, well, I'm done. It's you, you can grow that part of your mind throughout the rest of your life. It's, you know, it's interesting as Anita and I, over the years, I'm a big believer in uh, marital tune-ups when you need them, you know, if you get Bless a little me. wonky, you know, get it, get in there and see a trusted friend or a counselor, or whoever. And so we've done that a few times over the years, just again, we call mm -hmm. them tune-ups and it's funny. He always starts with a, a piece of paper with a bunch of faces on it and it's yeah. always, it draw a circle around the one that you feel like right and it's all it's all these different emotions with different faces they're almost like emojis yeah. happy sad embarrassed ashamed like just all of the different emotions but it's always an interesting exercise to stop and think and like how am i feeling today yeah and, uh, you know for guys especially we are not it probably most of us in the habit of stopping and considering and being mindful about how we feel in that moment where women are very much in tune with she's circling all of them. I'm a little bit angry. I'm a little bit confused. I'm a, and she's like, right. got all the emotions. I'm like, I think I feel fine. Where's the, yeah. where's the fine emoji. That's the one I'm going to circle. Yeah. Yeah. And then as the guys, we sit, hit pause and well, how am I? Well, I think I'm, I think I'm feeling sad now that I think about it. You know, <laughs> yeah, wait a exactly. minute. I didn't know I felt that way. Now maybe I do feel this way. Yeah. Uh, you know, the thing about those, those, the, those, the pictures, you know, you'll see that oftentimes in pediatrician's office is it, it also forces you because you're having to look at a face and say, oh, that face looks sad or angry or, or anxious. The better degree to which you can label your own emotions helps you then self-manage, regulate your own emotions. The, the, the really leads to the third pillar is social awareness. When I look at other people's faces, you know, whether it's on a chart or in a room full of people, how well can I read how they're feeling? And so it's the third, third pillar because really you have to be able to do that for yourself first to know, hey, I'm feeling sad or anxious or, or ashamed or giddy. Mm -hmm. Once you do that pretty well for yourself, you're in a much better spot than to be able to read the room. And in business or in relationships or you know, in your family, the ability to read other people is really powerful. Like if I'm in a business situation, maybe a sales situation, and I can see, hey, this person, I think they're feeling anxious right now. Or being able to determine they're not anxious, they're scared. And deter, you know, being able to to divide that. It's not, they're not anxious, they're scared. That puts me in a much better position than to deal with that environment. 
Mm-hmm. Hey, if they're scared, let me let me help. Right, you know, let me uh, back them off the cliff. Right, let's back them away from the cliff. And that's part of that Jedi mind trick because they might not know that they're scared. Mm-hmm. They might not know themselves that they're feeling anxious. But if I can recognize that in them, then that's the it power, right? That's the it. Power. That's the Jedi mind trick of I think you're feeling this right now, and I and I'm right, whether I'm right or not. Then I that puts me in a position. All right, let's help move them to a better spot, maybe a more productive spot. Well, and you know, I think that's a big predictor in our business of acquiring off-market properties. Day in and day out, you're talking with motivated sellers, right? These are folks that have some level of motiv- motivation, probably some level of distress. And it's it's it is sales, but really you're trying to acquire, not necessarily sell them something. I guess you're trying to sell them on, you know, the fact that they should sell their house to you. But the better a person is or an acquisition manager or salesperson is at matching, you know, and, and recognizing and um, comforting them in a way that you're know, recognizing where they're coming from, the better degree to which they're going to be able to get those houses under contract. If you're just yes. cold and you're there's no relationship building, there's no empathy, there's nothing, the chances of them wanting to do business with you is slim to none. Yeah. It's, and it's, that really is, you, you use the word empathy is really the key. And empathy it's easy to get confused empathy with sympathy. You know, empathy isn't just feeling bad for a person. It's putting yourself in their shoes and understanding what they're feeling, what they're experiencing, why that is. And if you're in someone's living room and you want to buy their house and they're talking to you about an off-market property, there's a reason they haven't called a realtor. There's a reason they haven't done certain things. And so understanding, man, this person is ashamed of their house or, or this person is really worried about what's going to happen or they're scared. That just puts you in a position, in some respects, to be an emotional thermostat. Mm-hmm. To say, hey, let me help, let me help regulate this person with what they're feeling. Let me put them at ease. And that's that's the fourth area is really is relational management. That if I can read with accuracy what another person is feeling, then I can step into their world as as a as an emotional thermostat and then help them regulate that. Which for them, they might know what they're they might not recognize what they're feeling themselves. But if I can help them regulate it, get them to a, a place of trust get them to a place where they're more comfortable, then you're in a much more productive spot to do some business, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to move forward with a, a plan of action. You know, in the business realm, in our businesses, it's also applicable to team management, right? Not just in sales. It's real easy to, you've been in meetings before where you just sort of feel like the air is taken out of the meeting a little bit or, or they've gone down, down a negative path. As the leader, if you're leading that team, how important is it for you to breathe positive life back into that. And really as a CEO or as a business owner, it really is our role constantly to be optimistic, mm-hmm. to to drive optimism and hope that this business has a future. And yeah, there's some bumps in the road, but don't you ever feel like you're just driving a team all the time, like in the in a positive direction, because the current is always pulling you in a negative direction. Uh, yeah. Yeah, a- absolutely. You're, you're as a leader, as a business owner, you are in the driver's seat. And you need to take control, right? You need to you need to, to take a, a not just a, a position of authority, but responsibility, and regulate the room, read the room, understand how people are feeling, and then lead them. And oftentimes that that's inspiring people, that's reassuring people, it's giving them reason to have confidence. Uh, but you need to recognize, hey, where are my people? And maybe everyone's just super excited and just you know uh, they don't realize, hey, there's some reality that we need to face here. But that that's our responsibility. Same thing out in the corporate world. You know, we, we might have listeners here who say they don't own the business. You know, they're in middle management. This is what we call managing up, right? Mm-hmm. If you can recognize in your superiors, you know, the people that you work for, what they're feeling, what they're experiencing, the pressure and the strains they're under. 
and you can manage up. I mean, a lot of that is is identifying the emotions they're feeling, regulating that in such a way that you know you're inspiring confidence. That that, that those are the people then that move up the chain. They're like, man, this people get this person gets it. They understand what what we're going through right now. We need to move them up, and so they're they're often those that are fast tracked for promotion up through an organization. So some practical applications. So somebody hears these these you know four core competencies, and they're like, man, I want to I want to work on that so that, you know, I, I bear the fruits of becoming better at emotional intelligence. How do you put those into practice? How do you become better at this? Yeah, right. So the first thing is, if get, is give yourself permission to pause. Uh, you know, too often that we, we do life, you know, whether that's in, in, in business or at home or wherever, just on autopilot. We go through life on autopilot most of the time. And so if you want to improve in this, push the pause bot button throughout your day and just ask yourself, what am I feeling? Like, what, what am I going through right now? And try to develop greater accuracy in labeling what you're experiencing. You know, it's it's funny because there's a lot of commercials now about people being hangry. That's a new term. I did not hear sure. the term hangry yeah. growing up, but that's what that is. It's like, I'm I'm angry because I'm hungry. But what you see in, you know, in popular media, people that are hangry don't know that they're hangry oftentimes. They don't <laughs> realize it, right? You got somebody handing them a Snickers bar. And, hey, now they feel better, right? It's, but just hitting a pause and say, how do I... How do I feel right now? What am I experiencing? That, that's the first, that's sort of the first step to improving in this. And then likewise, in an environment where stuff's going on, you know, whether it's in sales or in business or in conflict, doing the same sort of thing, just give yourself a permission to hit a pause mentally and say, what are these people feeling? What, what are they, why are they experiencing and trying to expand your empathy? Again, moves you down the tracks. It's like, if you can just hit pause and remove yourself, you know, mentally from the situation, Again, it's what we call uh, metacognition, thinking about my thinking, sort mm. of just set yourself aside in the corner of the room and look at it. Why are these people feeling? What are they experiencing? Why is that? If you can label it with accuracy, man, then you can re-engage in a much better and more productive way. Mm. But Love you kind of have to you have to force yourself to push pause. Well, it becomes a it should become most habitual to be become part of your day is to just stop and have that awareness, that mindfulness. And you, too, can develop Jedi mind powers. Is that what we're saying? That's right. That's right. You just, it doesn't, you know, doesn't naturally occur necessarily, but if you're intentional about it, of I want to be better at empathy, I want to be better at this. You absolutely, at any age, you can get better at this with yourself and it leads to better relationships. It leads to greater success in business uh, and it's worth the investment in yourself. Love it. There's got to be some books on this too. Any books that you'd recommend? Maybe at the end of the podcast, we'll uh, come back with a couple books that we recommend to to help explore that, that concept. Absolutely. There's a, there's a ton out there on this good stuff too. Really good stuff. So today let's talk about mindfulness and Jedi mind powers with our good friend, the Bex. What do you think? I love that. That's a great idea. Good people too. Good folks. All right. So Colin and Christina Beck, uh, winners of flipping showdown about a year ago, have a very successful real estate flipping business in Cincinnati, Ohio. I think we bring them on. What do you think? I'd love it. Let's get uh, let's get him in here and talk to him. Okay. Colin and Christina, how are you guys doing? Hi. Hey. Good to see you. Great to see you guys. It's been a minute. It's been a month or two since we've seen you guys. How you been? We've been good. Yeah. yeah. Just rolling along. Same old, same old. Kids are growing up. Houses are getting done. It's It's been good. Yeah. That's awesome. There you go. How about you? Doing good. You know, Kevin and I just finished this conversation on emotional intelligence and I, it's funny now that just talking to you guys, Colin, I, both of you guys are such 
you're so good at relationship building. Like even when you came down and you filmed with us for whatever, six months, you guys became friends with everybody. That's what's so funny. <laughs> you really did like the cameramen to us, to our business partners, to everybody. You guys were such good. You were so good at relationship building that again, Kevin and I were just talking about emotional intelligence and how that really can be an indicator of success. And you guys are just, you guys acquire properties all the time, but I, I'm guaranteed that it's, it has something to do with the fact that you're just good relating to people. Kevin, you've you know met him a handful of times. What are, what are you, I mean, is that yeah, along the, the same lines of what we just talked about? Absolutely. The time that I've spent with you guys, it's just, it's, it's something that sets you guys apart. Uh, you know, if you get 10 leads, your conversion rate is going to be through the roof mm -hmm. uh, and, and be able to land those off market properties. And I think that's, you know, a distinguishing factor for you guys is because you're really strong relationally, you know, without, you know, getting into the weeds too much. Why do you think you're so successful? You know, when you end up in a, in somebody's, you know, Sally homeowner's living room, why is it that you can land that deal so much more often than, you know, the other 10 Joes who are out there, you know, trying to get wholesale deals? I mean, I think from the beginning, we got into this because of people, like we didn't want to do, we wanted to do quality work to offer a quality product to the person that would buy the house. But when it comes to us buying the the deal off market, it also came to uh, getting to know them, figuring out what it is that they're trying to do. Uh, because at the end of the day, people buy from people, people sell to people and uh, spending the time to get to know the person and understand their story. And we had a couple experiences early on where just understanding the sad story that was that was going on with the person and being able to say, hey, we can offer a solution that works for everybody. Uh, but taking the time to listen and to understand what everybody involved wanted to do. And I, I mean, uh, I think like we've said multiple times, like we're still, we're still in contact with a lot of the people that we've, we've bought houses from because at the end of the day, we're a continuation of their story. And that's how we want, that's how we want it to be. And that's how every house that we've had has been. Well, yeah. And Kevin, you said when we're sitting in Sally homeowner's living room. And that's the point is we're sitting in her living room. We're mm -hmm. not just walking the house with her real quick and standing with her by the door. Mm -hmm. You know, It's about sitting and hearing the story and asking the questions and getting to know the person. And sometimes that means we don't, you know, convert and buy a house within a month because she needs three, you mm -hmm. know, sometimes that it's, yeah, or yeah. six or seven. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, but it's like, that's the point is that you're they are in their home where their memories are listening. Yep. yep. Yeah. Oh, listening. That is that is the working definition of empathy. You know, crawling into into their shoes and understanding their world. And you know, are they scared? Are are, are they nervous? Are they ashamed? Are they you know, mm -hmm. understanding what they're feeling, what they're going through, and then pacing with them. You know, pace with them if it's ten months. Pace with them. Hey, we got to get this done in ten days. Yeah. And when you do that, you build trust, right? You build a relational connection. And I imagine there's times when you guys weren't the top bid, right? You weren't the top dollar offer with someone, actually, but it's still most of the time. Yeah. I mean, crazy story. We actually had um, somebody that we knew of was going to be selling a house, had heard through the grapevine, reached out to her, you know, talked to her about the house, saw the house and ended up circling back and telling her, you will make far more on the market. Like if you go to market, this is when things were crazy. And it was just being very honest with her. This is what we can offer because of who we are and what we do for a living, right? Yeah. Like we need to make money on the back end. We're being very upfront about that. So this is our top dollar and you can make more on that. And she ended up circling around and selling to us. And I was 
shocked, but it was such a success story of just hearing actually what she wanted wasn't the money. It was the Mm -hmm. flexibility. It was the ability to leave her stuff in the house. It was all the other things, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Understanding her situation, climbing into her situation. And I love, I love what you said too, about being just a hundred percent forthright and being honest. I literally had this conversation yesterday with a potential seller just said, look, here's the deal. I have to make money. This is the, this is the business I'm in. So this is the best like we can offer you. And I think you could make more money if you did this. And sometimes we get the listing because of that. And that's the great thing about this space is sometimes you can, you know, you need to shift and pivot and you find another way to monetize it. But if you're just forthright with them and very honest with them and you match sort of their, their, what they're feeling and their emotion, you still end up getting the business. Something comes from it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee you, there are other uh, investors in your space who must look at you and say, "I gave a bigger offer. I, I had better money. What? What is it? What is the Jedi mind trick? The back, you know, the backs have. How did they do it? And it's it's building a relationship, establishing trust, and recognizing that money isn't always the primary motivator. Mm-hmm. And to understand what that motivation is, you got to get to know the person, crawl under their shoes, exercise some empathy, and pace with them. And you guys do that great. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, that whole, that's the line. Money is not always the primary motivator in the same way, you know, like, I mean, we joke about the budget issues on the show, but it was the goal is to do good work. And that means that from the buy, you know, for the owner who's selling to us, the the money may not be the primary motivator. And for us, while we want to make money on these houses, we also want to know we've done quality work. We've done good design. Like this is going to be somebody's home, you know, it's why we got into it and it's, and it's what we love about it. And so I think that just flows out of the whole process. And it's why you won the show. <laughs> you did win. Congratulations. It wasn't because of budget, obviously, right? It didn't be the show. But you guys, exactly. You, you do quality work. You guys clearly know how to flip houses and you guys are very good at it. So uh, for those folks that don't know, again, Colin and Christina came on flipping showdown on HGTV and, uh, and, did an amazing job, flipped three houses, ended up winning the whole competition. We've become friends in the process. They're now franchisees with Red Barn Home Buyers. But I would love for you to take us back. Like, how did you guys leave the, your corporate world or whatever you were doing before and become full time real estate flippers? You want to start? Uh, well, it started actually before even leaving the, the corporate world. Uh, we, man. 2013. Wow. Okay. I didn't realize you guys have been doing it that long. Wow. 2013 is when we bought a house from a woman who had owned it since she built it in 1963 and everything was original. Yeah. It was beautiful. Like if you wanted to see what the sixties looked like for a, you know, a a upper middle, uh, new build, like it was pristine. They had done the granite transformations and that was the only upgrade that house had. Yeah. Everything else was in original shape update. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The time uh, capsule I, that we call those time capsule houses. I love right. them. Call yeah. them grandma house. Yeah. I love the grandma house. Yeah. The grandma smell had the carpet in it. Nice. And so we started working on that. It was really just a, we had bought the house that we had previous to that. We had kind of overbought. We bought a house that was you know, we were house poor. And so we were like, Hey, let's buy a fixer upper. And we found this and spent five years fixing it up. And about halfway through, (laughs) five, did you say five years? 
Well, we are living, well, we living it with in babies. It. Yeah. My bad. My bad. Okay. Gotcha. 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 Yeah, yeah. It, this was never. This was never meant to be a. It was never meant to be a flip. It was. Gotcha. It was really a. Hey, let's buy a fixer upper and fix it as we live in it. Yeah. And gotcha. as we did that, we met a couple of friends that were flipping it and are flipping houses, and they were like, "Hey, you know, like you're doing pretty good work. You can, you can do this for profit." And I was like, I "Had no idea. Say more." So had so, conversations with them. Oh, go ahead. What was your day job then? I was an outfit. <laughs> like, what were you doing for a living back in those days as you were first sort of experiencing this new world of real estate? Yeah. So I, I was in outside sales for 11 years, did, uh, sold all kinds of different industrial equipment to, um, to factories. So I was mm -hmm. driving around the, driving around the Midwest and selling, uh, selling equipment to factories. Um, well, we were doing this project in our house and then we started doing one on the side because that was about all the bandwidth that we had, you know, while working full time and, and sales and bankrolling everything and just kind of figuring it out as we went. Mm -hmm. I had left a, a position in a nonprofit doing event planning and managing a college internship program to stay home with our babies for the majority. Gotcha. Um, mm -hmm of these early years getting into it. And so, you know, we bought that house in 13 and then 16 uh, was really when we started looking at, okay, we want an investment property. We want to try this. These friends who are telling us we can do this, you know, one of them was a realtor. He walked Colin around 20, 27, I think. 27 houses. We put offers on eight eight of them and finally got one. And everybody said you overpaid. overpaid. I'm like, I know. <laughs> I know. I'm tired of losing bids. But... <laughs> right. Time to win one of these. Things. Yeah, right. point, we didn't even know you could buy them off market, you know? And so we're just going through the whole MLS process and, yeah. um, and, and it was back when you could actually buy an investment on the MLS. Like that yeah. was a, it's a thing that a lot of people, I mean, wholesalers would buy things off the MLS and then sell them for more. And, totally. And, yeah. Yeah. Like I was just the world that it was that it was back in 2016. It's yeah. way different now. Uh, so cute little two bed, one bath, and Colin did almost so, all the work. I think we so much. brought in a an electrician and we brought in a plumber, and you did everything else. Wow. Yeah, yeah. and so it was a lot of nights and weekends. Um, you know, baby, on I think we had a we had a renovation pack and play. Yeah. That would just come oh out of the gosh. car. And, be in the extra bedroom. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of just hands-on learning. Yeah. Um, well, you basically created a second job for yourself is what you did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you had a part-time job at night. Yeah. Was, that, was it a win And when you went to sell it? I mean, was it, was the investment end up being a win for you? So we bought that house for 53,000. We put 18,000 into it and we sold it for 97. So okay. There you go. Yeah. You know, the fact that we like bankrolled it with savings. Wow. You know, like it was, it was great you know it was like a, a good enough experience that you did another one right well, the, second the, one, the second one was like the what not to do on your second flip that ended up being a huge win we bought from a sheriff's sale for our second property because wow. that makes sense why not why not go from the mls to the courthouse steps right like that is the <laughs> logical progression there go from the probably most secure way to buy a house to the least secure you know, walk into the, anyway. So we ended up buying a house on the, the courthouse steps and I've had conversations with my attorney since. And she's like, did you do this and check this and do that? I was like, nope, oh, ignorance man. bliss. Oh, <laughs> well, man. Yeah, I know, I know to look for that now, but didn't then. Ended up Five being a huge, huge blessing. That one actually ended up being, we bought that for 42,000. It was a four bedroom, one and a half bath. It was listed 
incorrectly on the auditor site, but nobody could get in. Um, it was on the next street over from our first one, bought it for 42,000. We put 30 into that and sold it for 135. Wow. So that was the one nice. that was the like, okay, the hook set when, when you do that, it, it was like, okay, cool. This is, we can keep going on that. So, and well, that kind of rolled on from there. So <laughs> you could, what, I mean, what folks that don't know the space really well, you buy at the courthouse steps. If you don't do your title work, you could have all sorts of hair on the, on oh, the deal. And so you, yeah. you guys just got lucky. Yeah. There were no, yes. nothing outstanding, no liens, no nothing. You just lucked out. Yep. We really did. It was, yeah, it was a huge blessing. That was when I learned how to do my own title search, which nice. I, I did my own title search on that. All the information is pretty readily available online here in Cincinnati. Um, I did all of the title work that I could. There were obviously things that I left out that I know to look for now. Mm -hmm. Um, but the beautiful thing about that was it was actually a investor that was holding it as a rental that had gotten foreclosed on tenants had already been cleared out of it. So it really was about the cleanest deal that you could have. There wasn't anything, his whole portfolio was being liquidated at the courthouse steps. So it was wow. actually really easy to find the trail of title on everything and see what had gone on with it. So anyway. Yeah. So we basically did one on the side over and over and over again. And then in 19, Colin, so Colin being in sales traveled a decent amount. So like as we're doing these on the side, he's, you know, maybe gone Tuesday to Thursday or whatever. And so um, I got to learn a little bit on the way meeting subcontractors when he was out of town and then FaceTiming him in, am I doing this right? You know, all of that. And so by early 2019, we were looking at this going, we like this so much more than mm -hmm. you traveling. We love when you're, we want you to be able to home, be home while our kids are young. We want, you know, to continue to do this, not one at a time. Yeah. And we were starting to see opportunities to get a few yeah. more. Um, and this is also, I mean, as the market's starting to get better and better, you know, all of yep. that. So, um, so it was just a really fun season and we, crunched numbers and looked at all the things and, you know, had conversations with people and actually had a crazy opportunity to go like work at the camp that we met at over the summer, sure. you know? So it's like, as we yeah. started exploring all of the different options of him, not yeah. being in sales anymore. Cause context, I was covering 15 States at this point in time. Yes. Like oh, I wow. went back to my hotel in Detroit cause it's the manufacturing epicenter of the United States. And like, I'd spend an hour and a half on the phone with contractors catching up on what had happened. So I'm sitting in a hotel four and a half hours away, trying to figure out what's going on and trying to get things scheduled for the rest of the week. And so it was like, okay. And then relaying that back to Christina, Hey, here's what's going on. Here's what we need to do to make sure this keeps going and all that fun stuff. Wow. So, so a day came where you either walked into someone's office or submitted a, a letter. You, there was a day when you resigned where you there told was your day when I resigned. Yeah. yeah, there was that day. What was that day? Like, like, how did you feel? And what did you experience uh, when it was like, this is coming to an end? Oh, uh, it was, uh, I don't know. It felt right. Like so many things had lined up at that point in time that it felt like, oh, this is what, this is what I'm supposed to do. So it, it really just made logical sense to say, Hey, I'm moving yes. on. I'm, I'm, and honestly, even with where I was with that position, it had kind of reached its apex. And we had realized that what I was, I was on a team basically doing new business development for a new product. And it was, kind of had reached its logical end. So um, it was, it was a really cool moment to just be like, Oh, all of this is lined up really well. And yeah, like you said, I made the phone call to my boss and was like, Hey, 
I'm moving on. And uh, he was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. You've, you know, I wasn't like hiding any of this from anybody. We were okay. active yep. on social media. It wasn't like people didn't know that I was investing in real estate on the side. Um, so. so while Colin felt like everything was lining up and he was very calm <laughs> about it, I have a picture. I was sitting at my best friend's house, sitting, you know, in a bag chair, watching our kids play outside. And, uh, she has a picture of me on the phone with Colin when he's calling to say, I have officially left my job. And I think my, ha- my face is just like, uh, <laughs> are we doing? really doing this? <laughs> yeah. And she, wow. um, he sent me that picture the next year. And it was funny. There's, there's this story and there's a story in the Bible where Jesus is walking on water and he calls one of the disciples, one of his guys out to walk on the water with him. Yep. Uh, and she put that Bible verse on it. Like you are stepping out of the boat. You are wow. allowed to be freaked out, you know, but it was, <laughs> it was just a really sweet moment for us of, we are trusting in each other and what we have built and what we want to build. Let's go for it. And so that was four years ago, right? 2019. Is that when you guys decided to do this full time? Yeah. My last, my last day was May 31st of uh, 20, Mm -hmm. 2019. So yeah, you're coming up on four years. Any regrets? Oh man. It's so, I mean this, no, no no, regrets, no no regrets. Lots of emotions, lots of ups and downs, right? We're very authentic and genuine about the experiences. Nothing, no job, no, nothing in life is all easy and rainbows, but it's good. You grow, you learn, you, yeah. Well, and Kevin can help you identify all those emotions, right, Kevin? <laughs> we, just, we just had this conversation. Red, right? Are they, yeah. And it has to be a roller coaster. I mean, you guys are out there, like you're solo. It's just you, like you are, there's not a salary. You know, and there's nobody offering your, your new Bennett's pet fits package for the next year. You just, you got to figure it out. Right. Yeah. yeah. You guys have done it. You That's guys part of entrepreneur, it. You know, yeah, I've been in full-time entrepreneurship since 2005. So I'm coming up on 18 years and, uh, and I can look back over 18 years and say, I can feel sort of what you're feeling, you know, four years in is that it's good. It's fulfilling, but it's, it's not always easy. I mean, right. being an entrepreneur, who said it was going to be easy? It's, it's, there's lots of challenges. There's lots of problems to overcome. But at the end of the day, you're working for yourself and you've got freedom and you've got flexibility. Like you said, you're home with your kids more. There's so many pros. There's so many good things that come from it. It still outweighs the W-2 paycheck from the corporate world, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that there's so much that comes from even just the, the intangible benefits. It's like, yes, we're building this business, but like we're growing in, our just even like creative process of like, okay, where else do we want to go? What other businesses, what other, you know, like there's just, I think there is something about that entrepreneurial spirit, you know, there's no matter what giving space to that is, is fun. Oh man. You couldn't have said it better. I I agree. If If you've got that entrepreneurial bent and you all of a sudden put yourself in an environment where you can flex all those, you know, creative muscles it is so fulfilling, even though it's exhausting and it can be tiring and it can be problematic. It's still so fulfilling to let you sort of spread your wings if that's naturally who you are and put yourself in an environment to do that. And I, every time I talk to you guys, I feel that you guys are doing that because you're exploring this and now you're exploring that. And we got this house and watching you on social media, you're doing so many cool things that I know you guys are having fun doing it. But again, you're still in it just like every other entrepreneur. Well, you got your ups and your downs. 
Yeah. It circles back to that emotional intelligence. It's not just with other people. It's with yourself as well. I mean, that's a lot of what we've talked about over the last four years as a, a married couple doing this is like, you have to be able to acknowledge the hard and mm-hmm. face it and have the crucial conversations and keep dealing with things. Cause when you don't is when, you know, you start to unravel and go, is this worth it? Yeah. You know, but it's when you can have that emotional intelligence of, okay, what, what am I needing? If I were sitting across in my living room, you know, right now, what, what am, where, where are we? And continuing to have those, the, the baseline covered of, we can figure this out because we're being honest with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in a marriage like that, or if you have a business partner, just putting having a pause of, Hey, we need to talk about this, right? Just mm-hmm. intentionally having those moments, those times where let's just, what, you know, where are we at? What do we, what you just said, what do we need? And when you can have an honest conversation with yourself, you might start off by saying, well, I'm just frustrated. But as you talk through that, you might really get to the spot of, I don't think. Well, if you can acknowledge that, then you're in a much better position to, all right, well, let's deal with scared then. What what do we need to do to reassure ourselves? That's a different strategy session than frustration. You know, Mm -hmm. if you can move to a greater degree of accuracy of, you know what, I'm really, I think I'm embarrassed. I blew that last week as opposed to I'm just angry. I'm not just angry. I'm embarrassed. Well, okay, now I'm more accurate. And with a spouse or a business partner, man, that's the perfect person to put a big old mirror right up in your face and say, <laughs> I think this is what I see going on. And let's do this together and navigate what's in front of us. Mm-hmm. 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 Somebody went And you guys me. are great at that. Oh, thanks. <laughs> it's a learning process. Um, I think somebody once told me that anger, vast majority of the time is covering up other emotions. So if you recognize that you're angry or you're frustrated, it's like there is almost always another emotion behind that. And, and so learning how to say that, having space to, to explore that and then to, and then to deal with it, right? Like we deal with the problems in houses all the time. You don't just see the crappy, ha, you don't see the crappy cast iron and just cover it back up. You know, you, you, unpack it you pull it out you put the good stuff in you figure it out like it's it's it all ties together it's all restorative totally so you guys are a perfect example of a married couple that that you do this together you know it's funny on tv Anita and i obviously represent that we do all our flipping together and we do a lot of it together but sometimes we do sometimes we don't sometimes she's more on the you know the traditional brokerage side maybe i'm a little bit more involved on but you guys are very much in it together on every project what I'm curious, you know, if somebody's listening to this and they want to launch into this as a married couple, what advice would you give that married couple that wants to get into flipping, get into real estate together as a team? Mm, I mean, I'll, I'll go first. It's just figure out your lanes and trust each other. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Like I do the design side and there are times Colin does not like what I pick out. Doesn't matter. <laughs> I learned that a long time ago. And that's, it is. I think that's one of the things that really, uh, really benefited us on the, even on the show. Cause it was such a pressure cooker of like, everything was bigger than it would be in, in real life and being able to look at each other at the beginning of the show and say, you know what you need to do. I know what I need to do. Let's go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, I got to work managing the projects and she got to work picking out the pretty stuff and figuring that stuff out. And oh my gosh, work on communication. Like that's, that's the other piece is be honest, know your lanes. And then um, you've got to be able to communicate because crappy stuff is going to come up and things are going to go sideways and you're going to have houses that you don't make money on, or you make very little money on. 
and business is expensive, real estate's expensive. And you just, you have to be able to be honest and have those conversations and say, this is what happened. This is where we are and work together to move forward from it. Mm-hmm. Love it. That's great advice. It's funny. That's it's Anita is nice. We get that question a lot too. And that's your, it's, it's a good response because it's almost our standard response is stay in your lanes. It really is good in this business to figure out who's responsible for what. Because if you both are trying to make decisions in the same space, now you're on, t- you're stepping on top of each other and you're arguing because I want to do it this way. You want to do it this way. Right. But if you sort of have a clear delineation from the get go that look, you're the design person because you're good at it and I'm not, but I'll, I'll make sure that, you know, the budget lines up and then I'll manage the contractors, you know, and, and you can trust each other and respect each other's decision-making in that space, man, it makes it easy. But at the end of the day, you're still going to have conflict. You're still going to have. And so how do you communicate through those? So those three things, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head, stay in your lane, trust each other, and then learn how to communicate. I think you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks. You know, along those lines, you guys took a huge risk, you know, leaving your day job, doing this full time. I mean, that that is a risk, you know, regardless of what sort of a success you had before. You know, what does risk taking look like for you now where your business is? I know you guys continue to grow and develop uh, as you guys talk to each other and look at opportunities. What does risk look like today for you? Because it doesn't stop. There's not a spot where it's like, hey, now we don't have any more risk. You still you still experience risk taking. I think uh, risk specifically in the last the last year has looked a lot like, okay, what does what do different ventures look like? What does it look like instead of flipping every single house? What does it look like to hold on hold on to it as an investment property or as an Airbnb or whatever uh, whatever that is and and looking at the the risk of the exposure to, yes, holding on to it generally has a much longer term return, but it also, takes away some of when this is your day job you don't have the upfront influx of cash you know and and so that i think that's that's the most recent risk is like oh wow this feels we didn't have that cash come in there that we were expecting or hey this is gonna like this is gonna play out longer term so i think just managing that as we as we go forward Mm -hmm. Um, i mean building a business i think employees are risks i think that like he said, uh, different ventures are doing different things with houses, building additional businesses um, that kind of coincide. It all it all expands as you are open to it expanding, but sometimes they don't go well, you know, like mm-hmm. we, and that stinks. It really, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, you know, I think Colin and I often look at like success isn't everything working out the way that we expected it to. It's learning it's yeah. it, it's looking at the long term playing the long game it's mm-hmm. um yeah all of that <laughs> the roi doesn't always have to be financial yes yeah mm-hmm. good that's a great point and i i like what you said too just about having it's really having a plan b and a plan c and we always tell our franchisees and anybody we coach when you go into a house you hope for the best you hope that you're gonna flip it and make money but you you plan for the worst and so if the market shifts and all of a sudden you got to keep this house or you got to figure out what am I going to do? What is your plan B? And so, especially if you're dealing in houses, it's always, to me, it's always good to play in that space where you have a lot of plan Bs from a price point perspective. Like, can I, can I hold this thing, put long-term financing it, Airbnb it, put a long-term tenant in it. If for some reason it doesn't sell. Um, so focusing on those price points that aren't so, so high up there that you don't, it's going to be hard to have a plan B. Sometimes that's good in terms of risk mitigation. And it sounds like you guys are in that space because obviously the market, let's be honest, the market shifted, right? Yeah. I'm sure you picked up houses. You thought you were going to sell for X and all of a sudden they're not worth X anymore. So what do we do with those houses? Well, if you can, if you have another strategy and you can shift, you can hold them. Um, mm-hmm. 
I'm, I'm holding the house right now. I didn't plan on holding, but you know what? I got a tenant in there. She's covering the mortgage. So, so great. Yeah. But you want to have those plan B's going in. Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys seem like you're in a market and operate in a space where you've got a lot of extra arrows in your quiver to do that. We have a sweet spot here in Cincinnati in terms of age of house, size of house and price point, you know? And so for us, it it is sometimes the risk is going outside of that, you know, speaking of risk taking, going, okay, is this one worth it? You know? And, um, but for the most part, I think here in Cincinnati, yeah, we know where we do well because of exactly what you're saying, you know, because we can hold as a rental, because it's in an area that we are familiar with, because, you know, we know who would rent versus buy, you know, yeah, yep. because the exact same construction that we've done over and over and over and over yep. again. Yep. Oh, I hate stick frame houses. <laughs> <laughs> but we're the first planet. Yeah. A different, yeah. What is it called? Block, block, Brick on block, block masonry construction. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Nice. Well, you guys are pros at it. I mean, remember when you came down to do the show, it's like, a brick ranch from the sixties. That's ours. We're yes. claiming that one. We know that's going to really well. That. Sweet spot. Sweet spot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Now I know are... we got, I know what you got. We've got people listening right now. They're stuck in 50, 60 hour week job. They're in the corporate world. They want out. They want to escape. They Maybe they've dabbled a little bit in, in real estate, but you know, you've talked a lot about risk, starting new things. What do you tell someone who's been on the sidelines Maybe they've paid for a seminar. Maybe they've gone online. They've looked at stuff. They, they've they've looked, evaluated, and they just they hadn't taken that step yet. And they're still stuck in that, you know, eight to five job. What do you tell those folks that 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 have listened to you and they dream about the sort of life you guys have right now? What do you tell them? Buy a house. <laughs> in, the old, in the old house doesn't matter. Just the house. I, I have had so many just people that are like, "How do you get into flipping?" And I'm like, "Just." Buy a house. You'll figure it out. Because you're going to figure out every next step on that. I'm like, do your research, do your like, but like figuring out the how of buying the house is the best thing that you can do. Figuring out like when we figured out and we bought the first one on the MLS, we had to figure out oh, what do the numbers look like? How does this work? What are the commissions? We're All of that stuff. How do we make that all fit together? Buying at the sheriff's sale. I had to fit. I mean, you know, there's so many I's and T's I didn't cross. I learned like, that was an amazing learning experience for me going, oh, I wonder what it looks like to do a title search. Do I have to hire somebody for that? Can I do it myself? And I'm Googling and you'd like, hey, what all goes into a title search? Literally the only liens I couldn't find were the IRS's liens. And the only reason I didn't is because you have to call the IRS. And I had no desire to tip them off to the fact that I was looking at that property. <laughs> and, um, all of that to say, like, I, I, I do think that ultimately the best advice that I can give is buy a house. While you're still working, buy a house. Just, just start. I mean, I think that's the message is just because you can you can read about basketball and, and but until you get in the, on the court and start playing, you don't know what basketball is like, right? Yeah. It's the same thing with flipping houses. You can study all you want about flipping houses and learn, get all the education in the world, which a lot of people do. They listen yeah. to all the blogs, all the podcasts, you know, they get on YouTube. And it's that doesn't mean they know how to do real estate until you just do it. You just yeah. got to start. And it's the same with our franchisees. It's like, we've given you all this education. We've trained you up. You've got the best training out there, but you, now you got to start making phone calls. Yeah. Now you got to start making offers. Now you got to get in the game and you just have to start. And then, like you said, buy a house at some point. That's that's what this is. You got to get in it. So you got to do it. I love that. Yeah. Now, a lot of times experience, right? You got to have experience comes from making a bad decision. But at least you made a decision, right? At least you're in the game and hey, now you got some experience and you'll do it better next time. But if you're not making decisions, you're not having action, well, you're not building experience then. So Mm -hmm. jump in the game. 
My favorite quote probably is uh, experience is what you get right after you needed it. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> that is exactly right. And that is real estate because there are so many things you just can't, you can't know until you experience it. So you just got to get in there and start doing it. Well, it's, and it's, it, it was interesting. I was listening to a guy. Oh man, this has been a couple of weeks ago now, but it just, it made my head explode when he said this. And he was talking about like why amateurs feel like they're so good at something and experts, when you talk to them, feel like they're so bad at it, but yet you look at them and go, you're amazing at this. Like, why do you feel so bad at it? And he talked about how, when you're learning something, if you drew a small circle, you know, everything inside that circle and everything that you don't know is outside. And everything that you know, you don't know is the circumference of the circle. Well, <laughs> as that circle expands, what you don't know, you are far more aware of, but there's also a second circle that shows up inside, which is the things that you know, that you've forgotten that, you know, <laughs> and, and I was, I was, um, uh, this was pointed out to me very vividly when we sold one of the last houses that we did. And the girl that bought it looked at me and goes, how do you know, how do you know a load bearing wall and what to do to remove it? Like, how can you tell it's load bearing? And, and how, like, how do you know all that? And I looked at her with the most like dumbfounded look because I'm like, it just is. I just you forgot just, how you just do. Like, it's just, it, it, like, and it was like right after I had seen this guy talking about this and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I know exactly how to identify a load bearing wall and what to do and who to talk to. But like, that's not something that I actively remember. It's just there. And so mm -hmm. I think that so often as you dive in, I mean, like you were saying, Ken, you've got 18 years of experience. Like you've probably forgotten more about real estate than oh, a gosh. lot of people that do it. And, and we forget how valuable that is because if I asked you a question, you'd be like, duh, you just, cause you've got the experience. You've, you've built that you have the reps, you've been on the court and you've, you've made the shots. Yeah. You've missed the shots. Oh, like, I missed lots of shots. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but yeah, but we, I got in the game. Right? You got in the game. You got and you missed the shots to be able to say, oh, I know how to make that adjustment. Exactly. <laughs> I have one more piece of advice for somebody who's thinking about is get in a community. Yes. Like have people, you know, for us, we bought the house, but we had two friends who were doing it. So mm. we had people to ask questions to. So whether that's, you know, whether that's the franchise, whether that's, you know, like uh, groups, like knowing, having people and having community, I think makes jumping in because Colin's more of a risk taker than I am. You know, I need to know I've got you know, when I hit that wall, when I can't, when I don't know the question, when I really, when I'm very aware of what I don't know, I need, I need to know I can call somebody as well as Google search. Right. Like, well, and community in this context could also be mentorship. And I think Kevin and I, we talked about, maybe even talk about that in the next podcast is having somebody that knows more than, you know, who's got more experience than you do, who's mentoring you through. So it's never good to operate as an Island in this business. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, when you're starting out to know other people, to have a mentor, have a coach, somebody that's kind of walking you through it is always a good thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Guys, always a pleasure to talk to Colin and Christina. Love seeing your faces. It's been too long. It's been a couple months since we've chatted. And as soon as we're done with this podcast, I want to catch up with you guys, but thanks again so much for coming on the show. Love thanks having you. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, guys. Take care. Thank you, guys. Great seeing you again. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Friends, thanks so much for making it all the way to the end of today's podcast. 
If you or possibly a friend has any interest in learning more about real estate investing or opportunities with Red Barn Home Buyers, take a minute and head on over to redbarnhomes.com and check out our investors page or our franchise page, or just drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. Can't wait to see you on the next episode of The Deal Farm.